Let me invite you to take your Bible and open it up or click it open to Matthew chapter 2. For today, as we get started, Matthew chapter 2, it's always exciting to see different family members working together in service and ministry up here in the worship team and all throughout the church. Um, thank you for coming today and, and celebrating the birth of Christ. Uh, my family has been pressuring me quite a bit. I'm just going to lay it all out there. Dad, it's a Christmas special service. Be short. And I keep telling them I'm not going to be. So I'm telling you that in advance. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you. I actually have a lot to share, and I'm, I'm trying not to be boring. Um, I, I want it to be interactive and helpful for you, and so I hope it is that for you. And I want to encourage you, you, you might want to take out a pen and jot down a couple notes um, as we're going along. Of course, the notes for the sermon are on are online if you wanted to access them at pbcpowdersville.org. We're going to look at this topic of the Christmas story, which we have been highlighting all morning, from the video to the scripture reading to our time in the Word together. And the good tidings of great joy, I find that we have these three potential reactions. Option number one, when you hear the Christmas story, you reject it. Now you're here today, so my guess is you're not outwardly rejecting the Christmas story because you chose to come to church. And so you're open to it. So you might say, that's for someone else listening online. No, actually that group may also totally accept the Christmas story, but I want you to see how some people in our world respond to the Christmas story. Some reject it. Others are actually in awe of it. They think it's neat. They think it's cool. They marvel at it, and we need to consider, is that enough? Because ultimately, we want to embrace it, and that's the punchline. We want to be able to embrace it. So to illustrate this, a couple years back, there was a Facebook video that went viral with grandparents, and actually, it was, I think it was, yeah, it was grandparents, and the granddaughter and his son were communicating to the grandparents that they were going to have a baby. But they did it in a very unique way. They took headphones... And my kids are used to seeing me put these on in the morning as I use the infamous Dwell app that I've talked about many, many times. And I'll put these on, and um, they were communicating the message in a way that they handed out, had dad sit down on the table, and mom, both of them had headphones on, and they said, I'm going to have a baby. And as they were doing that, the, the wife, grandma, picked it up like in two seconds. Oh, that's so exciting. The dad was really intense, and he couldn't understand it. <laughs> He kept saying different things to it. So that inspired a little bit of a, a, a Christmas game that we played at the Henserlings last year. And we put on headphones. I think we just had earbuds or something and turned the music on and had different phrases. I'm just giving you some Christmas games to play. And, and you try to communicate the truth. And it is so funny how people can't get it. Because some people understand what's being said. They can read lips. You know, I know Pastor Rusty is good at reading lips. Others of us are struggle when it comes to reading lips. And, and sometimes you get a different message to it. And so I want you to try to listen up and hear the message that the Holy Spirit has for you. And some of us have headphones on. What do I mean by that? Well, you're thinking about who's coming over. Should I even travel this year? A lot of those decisions have been made because you're here right now. I get that. But you might think about it, how long is it going to take me to get out of this financial hole that I'm in because I love my family so much and I've bought them all these gifts. And others of you are now judging me for saying that because you're saying, how dare you? You should have budgeted a long time ago. 
I get it. All of those things can distract us, but I want you to hear the message of the story. The best way to do that is for us to read from the text. So look at Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to consider this first one, which is the rejection of the king. And as we look at this, I don't forget about last week. Last week we talked about the connection between Jesus and King David. So all of chapter 1 of Matthew is proving to us that Jesus has the legal right to the throne. So he is the king. And this whole book of Matthew is about Jesus as king. So chapter 2, we're introduced to a guy who calls himself a king. And I want you to notice with me and even consider, if you have a paper copy of the Bible, you could circle the number of times you see king or ruler in here. If not, just note this with me. Verse 1 of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers, which is the same word as king of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to, the, to rest over the place where the child was. And by the way, the child here is the word for a young child, not an infant like in the book of Luke. So putting everything together, I know you've heard this before, but the nativity scene isn't quite accurate. It's putting all the characters together at the same time. But this is when they're coming to the house where Mary and Joseph lived and these wise men are seeking out. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And when he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. I thought it was interesting that the angel did not refer to him as the king. Uh, He refers to him as Herod. You know that Herod guy that claims to be this ruler? Um, That guy's going to try to kill your son, so you need to do something about it. This is the second time in the story of Matthew where an angel comes in a dream to Joseph, and we see it a third time. It happens in, in verse 19, and then finally a fourth time it happens in verse 22. And so that was the means in which God ordained for Joseph to receive instruction. He'd get dreams, and he'd respond to the dreams. And he was always immediate in his response and totally following God and what he wanted. 
It's really a sad story. As you know, what happens, Herod kills all of the children. And we talk about from the year, which is where we get the idea of how old Jesus was at this point. Uh, Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had tricked the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children of Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under. So this is about the age of Jesus, a toddler probably. Herod was just covering his basis. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, when the, uh, then was fulfilled what was spoken, spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And we see this claim to be king. So this is the first thing I want you to understand, that when people hear the Christmas story, sometimes they reject it because they want to remain king over their own lives. They make an unrightful, unjust claim to the throne. Why doesn't Herod have the right to the throne? The word is Idomean, which means he's a descendant of Esau. And so Jesus, clearly a descendant in the right way, connected not through Esau, but through Jacob, had right to the throne. Herod didn't, and he knew it. He knew it firsthand. He is Herod the Great. Luke 1.5 talks about him as well. And he reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And in the B.C.s, it worked backwards in that way, 37 all the way down to 4. And he died. And in fact, as I looked at how he died, it's called Herod's illness. Josephus refers to some strange illness that overtook Herod unexpectedly, and he died of pain in his gut. Similar to how many of the Herods died. There is another Herod later on who dies of worms eating him up. Don't mess with God. Don't try to make yourself the one sitting on that throne. There is a king, and it's Jesus, and he reigns on that throne. I tried to highlight to you as I was reading through, and you'll look down at at your Bible, Matthew 2. Notice in verse 1, king is mentioned, Herod the king. Verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? A king in reference to Jesus. Verse 3, Herod the king. Verse 6, ruler. Verse 9, the king. Verse 11, they worshipped they, they did worship fit for a king. And this is interesting, the worship that they had fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now why these three? Well, we just got done singing about them. Gold is for the king. Incense is this idea of his present life or God with us. And myrrh, the preparation of his death. Those are speculations that they could be the reasons for it. Uh, I do know, at, at the very least, it is God who, when he directs someone, when he guides, he always provides. So these wise men, however many there happen to be, we come to the conclusion that there are three of them because there are three gifts. Nowhere in the text does it say it was limited to three. It could have been a hundred of them. We don't know. And these gifts were precious gifts that God used to supply for Joseph as Joseph responded to God's leading, God always provide for his need. And that's a beautiful truth. Whether or not we are really sure that gold, frankincense, and myrrh stand for the things I just mentioned really is irrelevant. I think the better connection we could make is to the prophets. So in Isaiah, it teaches us how the Gentiles will come and bring gifts to the Messiah. Some passages that relate to that would be Isaiah 65, Isaiah 60, 11, Isaiah 61, 6, and 66, 20. 
So if all you did was look back at Isaiah 65, you can notice the footnote, the reference, and you can follow the track where it is prophesied that we'll know who the real king is when the Gentiles come and bring gifts to him. And that's exactly what happened. And it's a beautiful coming of gifts and presentation to the king because he is in charge. We do wonder, and I have wondered about the star, and even this year, there is what is considered to be a conjunction of the planets happening. So the solution has been, from a medical scientific perspective, that what happened to the wise men is that it was just sovereignly the right time for the planets to line up to direct Joseph and Mary and um, and, and that's more of the movie style, but this, the direction is for the wise men as to where to go. A couple problems with that. Number one, I think we have an elevation of science in our age today. If science gets it, then we believe it. Actually, when the scripture gets it, we should believe it. And I want you to know that scripture is not going to contradict with what man can discover about science, but scripture is supreme. It is our rule and our authority. And I want you to understand that it's very important to start there. But if we take science, stars move from the east to the west. And where is Bethlehem from location in Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem, down to Bethlehem, north to south, it's south about five miles. So it is not normal for a star to move north to south. I don't think it was some supernova that was created. I personally believe, based on the fact that they were really excited when they saw saw the star. Look down with me at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So the, the star they had seen was gone. It led them to Jerusalem, and then it was gone. And when they saw it again, it says in verse 10, when, the, when, the star, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because there it is again. So what do I think that could be? What do you think it could be? I think it's probably the same theme all throughout the Christmas story of the Shekinah glory. I think it was God shining down at a particular time to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and I want you to come and worship him. I think we see this in the angels uh, coming to the shepherds. There's bright light and majesty. There's always this beautiful brightness in the midst of darkness that God intervenes at just the right time and he leads people where he wants them to go and we can rejoice in that and he provides for us when he leads us in that particular way. Now, the other aspect of the rejection is we want to protect the throne. And how do we protect the throne? Well, we protect it by understanding that Jesus threatens my own supremacy. So I need to get him out of my life or at least get him in a real comfortable place so that I can choose what I do with my life. And and that's not something that we're called to do. The reality of Jesus threatening your supremacy, you must submit to his absolute authority. I'll put it in this way. Submit to his authority. He is king. That's what I keep telling you over and over again. Submit to his rules. What are his rules? Well, to put it in real simple terms, the very simplest way to talk about it would be the Ten Commandments. And he summarized those Ten Commandments into two commandments, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the law of Christ, which is loving one another. And I ask you the question, if Jesus really is king and you're like, I'm not in that group that rejects, I'm here at church today, then my question for you is really simple. 
Is he supreme in your life? Does he have first place in every decision that you make? Do you think about bringing him pleasure before you think about bringing yourself pleasure? Do you even consider this idea of, is my decision in this particular situation, in this relationship, this conversation, this, this purchase, is it glorifying God? Is it showing greater love for God and a greater love for others? If not, he's really not being acknowledged in your life as king. Um, I could also add one other phrase, his ways. The ways of Jesus are radically different than the ways of the world. If you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. I was talking with one of our members about surrender, how hard it is to surrender all. You know, I surrender some, I surrender some. No, it's I surrender all. See, if, if I know he's king, and I'm, I'm actually aware of it, it's not just some Christmas story with this, oh, cute. We actually do fall on our knees. And we say, I am yours, Lord. I surrender all. Are you there? I'm asking this because it is a tendency for us to say, no, I don't reject the message. And I'm, I'm saying, well, maybe you have in little parts. If the Holy Spirit's working on you right now, There's a solution, it's called repent of your sin and say, I need your help, God. He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, if you have an enemy, which who doesn't? What does Jesus say? Love your enemies, pray for them. If someone asks something from you to go a mile, go another mile. If they ask you for some clothing, take off your coat and give it to them. This is, it's not about this world, it's about the world to come It's about Jesus being king. Stop protecting your throne. Second option. And and then I'll pray a prayer of supplication, and then we'll sing, and I'll come back up and give that embrace topic. So reject it. I hope you're not rejecting it. Um, I think most of us do reject the Christmas message. We reject Jesus as king practically, though not from words. We would say he's king, but practically we struggle. This next one is where a lot of us struggle, and it's the marveling part, marveling at the Christmas story. Before I get to the Luke passage, I just want you to notice in Matthew, how do the different groups respond to the Christmas message? Well, I think the wise men responded in this way of marveling in such an intellectual way. Um, Matthew starts out, Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come from the east. What's so intellectual about that? Well, if you consider that they knew to come to Jerusalem from Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. So this group of men from the east, again, we don't know how many they are, but they were studying somewhere from the Old Testament, I would suggest from the book of Numbers, where it talks about a star would come up out of Jerusalem. And they knew that, in fact, They go to Jerusalem to find out the answer. So they were intellectually stirred by this whole idea. And sometimes that's what the Christmas story will do to us. King Herod, of course, was moved in Matthew 2, verse 3. He was kind of bothered by it. He was troubled because he understood, I'm playing this part and I'm lying to everybody. And I'm trying to build a really beautiful temple and lining it with gold and faking everyone out. But I think the the ruse is up. I think they're they're figuring this out. The difference that takes place with the religious leaders when the king, Herod, asks them, is this all according to scriptures? 
I thought it was interesting that they give to us in Matthew 2, verse 5 and 6, they quoted from the Old Testament. They said, yeah, absolutely. Actually, the king is going to come from Bethlehem. Now, I want you to think about this. They're asked the question, is this true according to prophecy? It is King Herod, the descendant of Esau, that when he heard about Jesus knew this could be the Christ. He goes to the religious leaders. They said, yeah, actually, that does match up. But that's all we hear from them. If I'm a religious leader and I'm reading it and I'm hearing wise men come from the east and they're telling me that the Messiah might be born and the king asks me a question about that, I read it for him. I tell you, yep, that's exactly right. Do I just put my books away? Do I just close my Bible and say, yeah, actually, I know the law very well and that's what the law says. And I go on with my merry way. We don't hear the religious leaders doing anything. It was the shepherds who, when they heard it, were in awe and went immediately to go find out about it. That's what happens sometimes when we get too fascinated with this concept of um, intellectual stimulate. You know, we're, we're, we're stimulated by the, the facts of the story and, and how the star moved, and it's so much more than that. Turn over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. The question I have for you, and this is a great passage to read. We've already heard it read to some level up here by the Reader's Theater. Okay, so I won't repeat that. But I want to emphasize the fact that we have the shepherds who are receiving the message. And so just to give a a quick summary, I won't read the whole thing, but look at verse 8 with me. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord, there's that, that brightness, shone round about them, and they were with fear, or sore afraid, it says in the King James. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, listen to the message, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice it's not peace among those who have reformed their lives and their behavior to be willing and able to receive what God has for them. It is peace upon whomever God is pleased to pour peace upon. It's not about our good deed doing in order for peace to come. It's about God saying, I'm breaking through and I'm offering peace to all mankind. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord had made known to us. And of course, they find Mary and Joseph and the baby, and the baby's wrapped in the cloths just like prophesied. And the result of all of this is an awe and a wonder and a testifying of the truth. I want to highlight for you in verse 18, and all who heard it had this idea of wonder that took place of them at what the shepherds told them. Now, before I get to the wonder part, let me ask you the question, why the shepherds? Shepherds were a despised class because their duties frequently made them unclean. In fact, it was unnormal, not normal, for a shepherd to be able to be in the temple worshiping on Saturday because they were clean. They were not clean because of the duties they had to perform. So they frequently missed worship. 
In fact, evidence suggests that most shepherds were not permitted to give testimony in the courts due to their particular profession. Perhaps I think it happened because of Isaiah 61.10. Listen to these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set free the downtrodden, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Perhaps, as the teacher's commentary says, the shepherds would understand the, the Savior now lying in the quiet manger was to be the Lamb of God. And as the lamb, he was destined to die for the sins of the world, to die for these very shepherds as their savior. So perhaps shepherds who cared for the young lambs who sat through cold, dark nights in the field to guard and protect their flocks might understand the shepherd's heart of God, the father, might glimpse what it meant for them, for him to give his one lamb for all. That's why I think that might be going on. Now, have you ever heard, some of you have, that many believed these very shepherds were the ones taking care of sheep that would be sacrificed later on. So they actually were able to make a connection. That's somewhat speculative, but what I, I do know is that they were a poor class and God broke through and communicated the gospel to those that the rest of the world would say, insignificant, not worthy of this message. Actually, the gospel is good for everyone. And it is a message that he loves to preach to those that are willing to receive hope and help. But we do see this word marvel. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now this is an interesting word, marvel. And I would suggest to you that the story is emotionally stirring, and it's stirring for a lot of reasons. It, it gets you to say, wow, that was amazing. Now I have written down for you, and I want you to notice if you're in Luke, Look over at Luke chapter 1 and look at verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John. Who wrote that? Zechariah, who had angel Gabriel come to him and say, your wife's going to have a baby. And we heard that told to us up here as we were listening to the Christmas story. And they all wondered. So they had this amazement, this idea of uh, astonished that the guy that could, no long, could not talk, could not hear, he was willing to say his name is going to be John, and then he was able to praise God. This word wonder is found throughout the book of Luke. And I want you to see this with me. We've already seen it in verse 18. And all who heard it wondered. They were amazed. They marveled. Look at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Jesus in the temple teaching. They were in awe of what was going on. Look over with me at chapter 4, verse 22. Just following this simple word. Jesus is now in his public ministry. In verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So that they are, they're stimulated in a way that I could actually say would be intellectually stimulated, and that's the way the religious leaders were, or perhaps the wise men were, but they were also also emotionally stirred. And this emotional stirring is, man, this guy can really preach or teach. What's going on with him? Keep following this and see how this is not enough. Look at chapter 8, verse 25. In chapter 8 of Luke, verse 25, Jesus calms the storm, and this is the response of the disciples. He said to them, 
Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him? They're, they're in awe of someone who can say to a storm, Be still. But that doesn't mean that they yet completely believe, is the emphasis I'm trying to make. It's not enough to just stand in awe. Look at chapter 9, verse 43. This is the healing of a boy who has an unclean spirit. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Wow, God is amazing. God has power. This doesn't mean they completely believed. You'll follow this in 943, 11.14, 11.38. I'll say that again. 943, 11.14, 11.38, 20.26. But let me show you one more place. Look over at chapter 24 with me. Luke 24. This is the end of this book. And this word is picked up one more time. I think this is illustrated in a good way. Look at 24. We'll start at verse 12. This is after the resurrection happened. And I want you to know, if you're in awe of, intellectually stirred by the Christmas story, or emotionally stirred, that is not enough. Verse 12, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Again, Peter, empty tomb, wow. Wow, this is amazing. Okay, look at verse 41. Of, of Luke 24. And I have circled here, this is one, I could have just read this verse and said marvel means this, but I just want you to get this. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And here's the emphasis. You got to do more than Marvel. You've got to do more than stand in awe of the joy of this wonderful story and what it means to you and me. We have to take it that next step to say, I don't just marvel. I don't just think it's intellectually stirring. I believe. And how do I know if you believe? Because then you obey. You follow through. And you do what he calls you to do. So many different places to bring you when it comes to apply the text, but I'm just going to take us to one particular verse and it's in Luke chapter 2. So open your Bible back up to Luke chapter 2 because we're going to talk about embracing the story, um, accepting it, embracing it, and, and we'll take it from 19 and 20. So two verses, 19 and 20. I, I think it's interesting that Mary's response to all of this, it's st- said in just simple terms. And what I'm encouraging you to do, I know you know you should believe it, and many of you do, many of us do. We believe the story. Okay, so great. What does it look like? Practically, we say he's king. Is he really king over our lives? Are we just intellectually stirred or emotionally stirred? Um, You know, you can't really control the emotional stir. Sometimes it happens, there's a connection, sometimes there isn't. But ultimately, how do we know if we really do believe this? I think the example of Mary is a good one to follow. Mary treasured up all these things. I want you to just focus in on the word treasure and then on the word ponder. So what does it mean to treasure? Treasure up literally means to protect, defend, to keep in one's mind, to preserve. 
And, and it's interesting in its tense. It's an imperfect tense denoting a series of events leading up to the present. So it's not just she noted one thing and that was good, but it's a collection of things that she's observed over the period of time. It's kept safe in her mind so she can interpret the events later. And this is where a lot of us fall short because we are constantly amazed by God at work around us on a given day, but then we quickly forget about it. We quickly forget about it unless we're forced to, you know, take at Thanksgiving a kernel from a, of corn and say what we're thankful for. Then all of a sudden we're remembering. And so perhaps there's a better way to do this. Now think about Mary. First she's visited by angel Gabriel in Luke 1, 26 through 38. This is her first encounter with God doing something amazing. She was chosen, verses 30 through 31, by God to bear God with us, Emmanuel. That must have been an absolutely overwhelming fact. And if you're following in Luke chapter 1, uh, around verse 32, he is telling Mary he would be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. He's going to receive the throne of David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there's going to be no end to his kingdom. Now, just think about that. The baby, Mary's thinking, in my womb supernaturally, by the way, is going to be the guy who fulfills all the prophecy and saves all the world. That's an amazing fact that she's wrestling to understand. And then in verses 34 through 37, the virgin birth, the the conception where the Holy Ghost overshadows her and the power of the Holy Ghost comes upon her. And this is an amazing miracle that takes place which we mentioned last week. But we're not done there because immediately she says, wow, okay, I'll do, I am your maidservant. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. He says, go and see your cousin Elizabeth. And as we've heard it read for us, he goes and she goes and sees Elizabeth and Elizabeth's immediate response. She is just conceived in her womb, Christ. So there would be no evidence that she was pregnant to Elizabeth. And so it must have been a stunning reality when Elizabeth prophesies and says, you are most blessed among women. And my child in my womb leapt within me when you came. And that must have been something that she reflected on. How about from last week, the way when she returns back after now, I believe the timeline, if I put things together, she has, she's, she has Jesus conceived in her womb and she spends six months with Elizabeth and helps Elizabeth give birth to John. And then she returns, so she's six months pregnant, and she sees her betrothed husband, and the way he responded to her is absolutely amazing. He doesn't respond in wrath. He is shocked. He decides, this cannot be. I'm going to divorce you quietly. Then he sleeps on it, and he wakes up and says, no, I'm all in. She's pondering in her heart. This is, while she's sitting there holding this baby born in this cave structure, She's thinking, man, God, you are amazing. Um, We saw in the video the long trip to Bethlehem, Luke 2, 1 through 5. This would not have been easy for her. The humble place of birth, Luke 2, 6 through 7. No place for them in the inn. No place for Jesus. And, you know, you've heard sermons on that as well. I think she's reflecting on the king of kings, the creator of the earth, can't even be born in a normal place. And I think even if we wrapped our minds around what normal would be in this uh, context 
of um, you know, A.D., whatever, uh, it's, it's a little bit more rugged than what we're used to, if you follow what I'm saying. No air conditioning, not super comfortable, but to them, they ended up in a cave, a, a, a manger. And then the arrival of the shepherds, all I'm thinking is that perhaps she was a little overwhelmed. And I want to encourage you to collect the facts. I want to encourage you that when God does amazing things in your life, that you take some time to record it, to collect it for the purpose of reflection later on. Um, you know, we, like many of you, will record the opening of gifts on Christmas and um, when we're having breakfast together, when, when I'm with Silas and Judah, which I've mentioned many times, uh, Judah will turn on Apple TV and pull up different videos. And there are several really cute videos of gifts. And look at how small the kids were and their responses. And it's just amazing. But yet I forget about it so quickly. And I, I actually do journal myself. My journaling habits are a little random. They can, I can definitely improve in that area. So this is what I'm going to do with that, is I'm going to assign it to several of my seminary classes. And when I do that, then I'm forced to have to get a little bit more disciplined because I'm assigning it to them. Therefore, I feel like I need to do it as well. So if you're in my class this next semester, get ready. But I'm going to require you to journal. And, and I want to put this within the reach of all of you. And, and I found a resource that I actually... Um, copied and I placed in my Bible. It's from the Experiencing God uh, Bible study in the very back of it. It's called Keeping a Spiritual Journal. And so practically I'm saying to you, can you consider, would you please consider if you really believe this message, will you take some time to ponder all the great things that God is doing in your life every day and, and maybe every day is a little bit too bold of an ask, maybe once a week. I mean start small maybe once a month, but just start. And then go back and reflect on the great things God has done. That's what Mary did here. Um, then reflecting on the facts, pondering them in her heart. I think you believe it, you really embrace it if you ponder. And this means think about seriously. I, I love how the lexicon definition says you debate over what you wrote down. So in other words, you could write down, this is what God did, and then you come to conclusions, oh, God is great, and then you start to think, and I, I usually go, well, that's coincidence. Or that happened because this happened. That's fine, debate away, but keep a big view of God in your mind, right? But really meditating on it. Consider with divine help. It's a present participle. So it's not a collection of facts, it's something that you do regularly, where you're reflecting a constant evaluation on the collection of facts. And this is something that I need you to see with me. Look at Luke 1, verse 46, just as an example that Mary was doing this on a regular basis. This wasn't something that started when she gave birth to Jesus. Just like you don't start being a missionary when you jump on the plane. Like you start now sharing the gospel with those around you, and it's just a natural overflow as you land wherever God has you. Mary was in the process of collecting and reflecting on facts because when we look at the Magnificat in verse 46, notice this with me. Please look at your Bible, Luke 1, 46. Mary said, and I have uh, in my mind something that I think is important, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10 is on her mind. Because if you looked at what she says in the Magnificat 
and you look back at Luke, um, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 through 10, you'll see that she is meditating on Scripture. So she's recording things. And this is what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She views Jesus as her Savior. She doesn't view herself as the Savior. And this is in contradiction to what the Catholic Church teaches. And then she goes on to say, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And, and please note, in verse 48, 49, 51, 52, 53, 54, look at all that he has. This is who God is to me right now. Verse 48, he has looked on my humble estate. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. Verse 51b, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. Verse 54, he has helped his servant in remembrance of his mercy. This is a serious reflection on the facts. It's not just, wow, this is amazing what God is doing. It's like, it's amazing. Now I'm gonna turn this into worship. And one of the practical ways that you could do it is to consider journaling down the great things God's doing and then meditating over it and then giving him praise from it. It could actually become part of your devotions, but ultimately embracing it. And we see the embracing of it through Mary's response. But look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Um, They returned to the area of influence. That's what we need to do. They glorified and praised God based on two factors, they, what they heard from the angels offering hope and what they had seen, angels with Christ's child just as told them, it provided confidence. They had hope, they had confidence, and this is an amazing truth. And I say what happened here is they simply collected the facts, they reflected on the facts, and they believed the facts. And that's what Mary did, that's what the shepherds did, and I know that was quick on the shepherds, but you've heard how the shepherds returned, and they shared, and I want to encourage you to return, and for you to share. So simple question for you. How effective has your witness been, your gospel witness, because you're a follower of Jesus, right? You know, the goal here is that we would be disciples of Jesus who make disciples. How how has 2020 gone for you? And I'm talking to every last one of you, whether you're a teenager who's here or you're in that category of we don't have junior church for you because we know that you can handle this kind of preaching, or if you're retired or you're in that busy season of life, how effective have you been in demonstrating I embrace the story by you choosing to make a disciple? Now, I get this. You have to be faithful in your witness. God is the one who converts, right? He's the one that brings people to the point of decision, but he uses you. And have you shared the gospel with anyone? Are you casting that fishing line out there to see if you can catch anything? Are you using the blessing of the God-given context that you have? Many of you in your work context, you're at places, you talk to people that would never talk to a pastor, or they would be really nice to me but never changed because they'd be guarded. 
But with you, they're a little bit more open. Are you using that open door to say, I want to tell you about what is really meaningful to me? And I think what happens is that a lot of times we don't because we turn it into this awkward type of conversation. But if you're actually collecting the facts, reflecting on the facts, and believing the facts, when you get to work or you're out there with your neighbor, it's going to just kind of flow out of you. How are you? Oh, I'm struggling. And they ask you, how are you? Actually, you know, God has done some amazing things in my life. Did I just say that? Yes, I did. Because that's really what's going on. We are actually in an era, an age, when people are willing to receive your perspective on your journey. As long as you don't force your perspective on them. But a lot of us think, I can't even share what God's doing in my life because that's going to be weird. I'm telling you, it is what God's called us to do. And one of those people that you share with will, uh, will, will stop and say, you know what, I, I actually want to know more about that. And that's where your opportunity is. So, how are you doing? Rejecting it, marveling at it, embracing it. That's between you and God. And I'm going to give you a chance to tell him. So why don't you bow your heads and um, cry out to him. I'm going to pray and then give you a moment to just give back to God what he's called from you.